From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll take a look into who is more likely to be behind the wheel in pedestrian accidents. Plus, examine some traffic calming measures one local neighborhood is doing to make it safer. Then we'll learn about the first black woman cantor who was born here in Milwaukee. Milwaukee at this time was a time of a lot of exciting black thought and modern African-American advancements. We'll speak with Milwaukee Ballet choreographer Timothy O'Donnell about his last piece for the company. Moments where I'm sharing thoughts and trying to engage people in conversation is really who I am honestly as a choreographer and a creator of work. So I feel good that that's the note that I am uh, signing off on. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us today. Milwaukee pedestrians are more likely to be hit by a vehicle driven by someone not living in the city. A study from UW-Milwaukee looked closer at the characteristics of who is causing the accidents and the demographics of pedestrians most affected. The study also examines how this is especially affecting communities of color. Tony Giron is the engagement manager at Milwaukee County Parks and is one of the co-authors of the study. He shares more with Lake Effect's Mallory Chang. So, Tony, you and two UWM researchers, Robert Schneider and Shohan Gu, authored and researched a study that looked into the socioeconomic characteristics between drivers and pedestrians. And in your study, after reviewing a random sampling of pedestrian crashes from 2011 to 2015 in Milwaukee County, uh, you all found a stark difference between the drivers who hit pedestrians and the pedestrians themselves. And Tony, what were the backgrounds of the drivers who are hitting pedestrians with their vehicles and of the pedestrians? Sure. So generally speaking, what we found was that on average, the drivers who were hitting pedestrians were older of higher income. They had higher automobile ownership rates. They were more white residents and fewer black residents. This report takes a sample of police reported pedestrian crashes over four years between the years 2011 and 2015. And we compare age, sex, and home addresses and look for statistical differences. So we were able to compare the uh, census tract data between drivers and pedestrians, and we were able to estimate roughly how much money, uh, how much income each of those groups makes. So one of the biggest findings that we had out of this report is that drivers from higher income tracks were more likely to strike pedestrians from lower income tracks. So those are 85% of the drivers who were hitting pedestrians come from higher income tracks. So that's, that's a pretty large disparity there. How were you able to find or figure out the income levels of the people who were causing these accidents or incidents? So we don't know the exact income level of each individual driver, but we were able to estimate roughly how much they make based on the census tract that they live in. So uh, a census tract can be several neighborhood blocks, and we take the average, uh, the census data takes the average income of each of those individuals, or the median income rather, and estimates what the average person would be making who lives in that census tract. So it's not an exact science, but we were able to to get a rough estimate as to how much drivers and pedestrians who are involved in these crashes are making. 
And what about uh, the backgrounds of the pedestrians? What was generally their backgrounds and demographics? Well, it was really all over the place. You know, it was a diverse audience, but in general, they were in line with the median age and but they were definitely a lower in a lower income bracket than than the drivers and uh, had slightly less automobile ownership rates and racially were just kind of across the spectrum. Another statistic that we found uh, that pertains to equity is that 27% of adult drivers crashed into pedestrians that were younger than 18 years of age. So there are more children, teens that are affected by reckless driving. With the study, you all looked at pedestrian crashes throughout all of Milwaukee County. And in Milwaukee County, there has been an increase generally of pedestrian-involved crashes of vehicles hitting pedestrians. But Tony, generally with your study, where in Milwaukee County are these crashes mainly happening? So most of these crashes are happening closer to the city center and along generally along our interstates and state highways. So these are streets like Titonia, Fond du Lac, National Avenue, anywhere along I-43. That's where we've seen the most amount of crashes. Yeah, it sounds like those are by major roadways. And with the drivers who are causing these pedestrian crashes, who are hitting pedestrians, are these drivers living in Milwaukee or are they just commuting to and from the city? We found in the study that a greater proportion of drivers who lived outside of the city of Milwaukee crashed into pedestrians who lived within the city versus the other way around. So 25% of drivers lived outside of the city and were hitting pedestrians inside versus 10% of drivers who lived within the city were hitting pedestrians who lived outside of the city. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds like the crashes are happening are caused by drivers who are commuting through the city, like using these main roadways to go from outside Milwaukee to into the city center, right? Right. And I can theorize why that might be. You know, there's people who might live in the suburbs or just outside of the city tend to commute towards their jobs within the city versus the other way around. If you live in the city, you might have a job within the city and not be commuting outside. You know, there's there's just a higher concentration of people who work within the city of Milwaukee. If you could theorize, why is this trend happening? Why are so many crashes caused by majority white, older people who are not from the city of Milwaukee causing crashes that are impacting Milwaukeeans who live in the city? Milwaukee isn't unique in this. There's been an increase in pedestrian crashes over the past 10 years uh, in the U.S. versus many other countries throughout the world. But we have seen an uh, especially large increase in crashes within the city of Milwaukee and the region. Something that we did find from the study as to why this might be happening is that people who are, are of lower income, who are poor, are you know often people of color and they travel more locally. So they might live within their neighborhood and have a job within their neighborhood and be more at risk of getting hit by crossing these major highways that run straight through neighborhoods of lower income. Yeah, and I got to say too, like as a driver, it's hard to visually differentiate it between like a highway sometimes because people are going so quick 
and there aren't a lot of stop points for pedestrians to safely cross the street unless they're jaywalking or trying to weave through traffic. And Tony, your background is in city, community, and regional planning, specifically in figuring out how to make transportation for pedestrians and cyclists safer in our communities. And from your perspective and from your city planning background, what structural changes need to be done to make sure that additional pedestrian fatalities caused by drivers don't continue to happen in Milwaukee's streets? So we identified that people who are of lower income live closer to roadways that prioritize car travel. So they have a greater risk of getting hit. So what we could be doing as planners and engineers is to identify when and where there's a higher pedestrian risk. You know, is it along a particular roadway and what time of day and what time of week is that happening? And then we can prioritize those improvements for groups that are at higher risk. And those improvements can look like, it could be anything from education, educating both drivers and pedestrians. It can be enforcement, having uh, more of a police presence. We can be encouraging people to walk, bike, and bus more. But over my years of being an urban planner, I've uh, realized that the most impactful thing that we can do is engineer our streets to be safer for people walking and biking. So that can look like marked crosswalks and pedestrian islands, curb bump outs. And we found through various studies that those traffic calming elements in combination, when you combine them all, has a much greater impact than if you have just one of those by itself. The truth is we do have a reckless driving problem in Milwaukee, uh, more so than in other Midwestern cities. And it just makes it that much harder to get people out walking and biking. And I mean, everybody should have the right and privilege to be able to feel safe in their neighborhoods and cross the streets safely and not feel in danger for their life. Well, Tony, thank you so much for being here today on Lake Effect. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Tony Giron is the engagement manager at Milwaukee County Parks and is one of the co-authors of the study. He spoke with Lake Effect's Mallory Chang. The streets connecting Milwaukee to the surrounding suburbs are some of the busiest areas of the city. At any time of day, there is a constant hum of traffic. These are also oftentimes a hot spot for speeding or pedestrians getting hurt. To address this, one local organization is putting in traffic calming measures so that drivers can slow down. Lindsay St. Arnold Bell is the interim executive director at Near Westside Partners. She joins Lake Effect's Mallory Chang. Well, Lindsay, welcome to Lake Effect. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. So, Lindsay, in Milwaukee, pedestrians of color are unfortunately more likely to be struck by a vehicle than their white counterparts from a recent UWM study, and they often can be fatal. Just last year, 26 pedestrians had died in Milwaukee County because they were hit by a vehicle, and that's the most that's ever been in 20 years. And your nonprofit organization, the Near Westside Partners, is trying to prevent any further pedestrians being hurt and really calming traffic that goes through your corridor. And tell me a bit about what commuting down major streets like West Wisconsin or North 27th Street is like. What does traffic safety look like for pedestrians and residents of the neighborhoods? So the near west side is one of the best connected communities in the city of Milwaukee. We are centrally located just west of downtown And we have some major thoroughfares that connect the east and west sides and Milwaukee's north and south sides. 
Um, so you will see heavy traffic along um, Highland Boulevard, Wisconsin Avenue, and North 27th Street, North 35th Street, especially during um, the commuting hours. This is also a time where we see a lot of our transit riders out waiting for buses, as well as our pedestrians and students walking to the many schools we have in the neighborhood. So traffic and pedestrian safety is incredibly important to us as an organization. And uh, we've taken a number of steps to help improve the safety of those who are traveling through the neighborhood to reduce uh, speeds of vehicles and and at the same time, to take this time to really improve um, the experience of the pedestrian who is traveling down the street. As Milwaukeeans, sometimes we can be pedestrians on the street and sometimes we're behind the wheel. But what does traffic flow look like and traffic safety look like if you're behind the wheel? The near west side, like all communities in the city of Milwaukee, has uh, experienced fatal traffic accidents related to reckless driving and people exceeding speed limits. Um, it's certainly not an issue that we have managed to avoid. Um, however, you know, I, I would say that we are fortunate in that because of the many connections that we have, traffic tends to be dispersed onto these higher traffic thoroughfares. And a lot of our side streets are still very safe and supportive for those pedestrians that traverse. Yeah, and your organization also added traffic calming measures like repainting crosswalks, expanding pedestrian curb bump outs, and even adding decorative planners along North 27th Street, West Wisconsin Avenue, and West Fleet Street. And with these measures, are drivers slowing down their speeds and has this helped make the areas more pedestrian friendly? Absolutely. So near West Side Partners has taken on a number of initiatives to uh, slow down traffic and, and really promote traffic calming. Our planters along 27th Street that include painted curb bump outs and bollards have significantly reduced the um, rate of which people would travel in the parking lane, and it has slowed the speed of travel down significantly. That's made it not just safer for the pedestrians that travel and cross 27th Street, but also for the cars that are um, using both 27th Street North and South and crossing on the East-West Street. We also, along West Elite Street in uh, 2022, we were fortunate enough to have a um, high-impact repaving project with the city of Milwaukee. And during that project, they repainted the bike lanes, they um, did some painted curb bump outs near Washington Park to improve access and visibility of those crosswalks and those, those vital entry points into Washington Park. And we also hosted a, um, a traveling parklet with support from um, the Wisconsin Bike Federation. And that really has been um, something we'd like to do more of as we look to the years ahead, because parklets are a great way to calm traffic, but it's also a really great way to promote gathering along our sidewalks and our city streets, to promote our small businesses, and to make people feel safe and, and give them a little bit of extra support as they are patronizing these businesses. And you mentioned this a little bit about looking into the future, but does the Near West Side Partners have any plans to add more traffic calming measures across the areas that you serve? Yes. 
So we are continuing to uh, work with the City of Milwaukee Department of Public Works to explore where we can add additional curb bump outs, um, the painted bump outs, the planters, you know, those are uh, a relatively small um, and a good first step toward some larger infrastructure improvements. And we will continue to be at the table during all discussions that the city and others host to discuss how we can make our streets safer for those who travel on them, both in cars and on foot, but not just safer, to make them more fun to be on and, and to make them healthier, more vibrant places generally. Lindsay St. Arnold Bell is the Interim Executive Director at Near Westside Partners. She spoke with Lake Effects' Mallory Chang. Did you know that you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Just search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen to us on demand. Don't forget, you can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. If you're a fan of Radiohead or feel nostalgic about the 90s, stay tuned for a conversation with Milwaukee Ballet's resident choreographer. But first, we'll learn about the first black woman cantor who was born here in Milwaukee. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today we are looking at a piece of Milwaukee's Black and Jewish history. Milwaukee lays claim to the first Black woman cantor, who grew up here in the early 1900s. Madame Goldie Steiner wasn't a cantor in an Ashkenazi or European Jewish synagogue. Those roles were not open to women until the 1970s and 80s but she may have led prayers in black Jewish communities and was part of the golden age of Jewish liturgical music, singing it throughout Wisconsin, the Midwest, and the country as a part of the Yiddish theater scene on Broadway and on the radio. WUWM's Mayan Silver speaks with Milwaukee-born educator, artist, and advocate Shahana McKenney-Balden to learn more about Madame Goldie's life. So Madame Goldie Steiner was born in 1889 as Gladys May Sellers and raised in Milwaukee. Can you tell us about her life? Yes. She sang from a very young age, and she was a gifted vocalist. As a young person, she um, went to school in Milwaukee Public Schools, where she undoubtedly became fluent in German because all kids were getting in, at least some instruction in German in Milwaukee public schools at that time. As a young adult, she was an usher at the Pabst Theater. And then she uh, was active in her church 
which was St. Mark AME Church, the same St. Mark AME Church, which is still active in Milwaukee today. They're on Atkinson, and about 16th and Atkinson. And she was very active in the um, musical life of the church. The church was a very important center of African-American life at this time. And, you know, before the Great Migration, there were very few African-Americans in Milwaukee. In her early life, um, there were probably a thousand black people in Milwaukee. Uh, but anyway, she, she grew up, she got married to Albert Smack, who was a singer and who also um, uh, ended up uh, working at the uh, Milwaukee Journal. He was a, a metal man there. And they both were involved in the musical life of the church. And Gladys sang in the church and also in the community. And she sang in the community in Milwaukee and in the surrounding region, in Madison, in Chicago, in Minnesota. Uh, and she sang at some very important African-American community events. A send-off for African-American soldiers headed off to World War I. The opening of a black-owned business in Madison that was an all-day affair with a full baseball game and looking at stereoscope images of uh, black progress and solos by Gladys. She was part of the Wisconsin delegation that represented the state at the Jubilee 50-year celebration after emancipation. It was a little bit more than 50 years after. I think it took a while to get this event together. Um, but this was in Chicago and she was a part of it. The black press followed her career. The um, Wisconsin Weekly Blade, an important black paper that was published in Madison and then in Milwaukee later. And the Chicago Defender, which had a correspondent who was based in Milwaukee. They followed her career. So we know quite a bit about her singing career in Milwaukee. And then around 1922, she gives it all up and she leaves and she goes to New York. And in New York, she becomes Madame Goldie Steiner. And she starts to sing Jewish liturgical music this was the golden age of Chazanus, which is the term for Jewish liturgical music led by a prayer leader called a Chazan. There were women who were doing this. They were called Chazantas, which actually meant the wife of a Chazan, but it's a term that these women singers took on as they were a part also of this golden age of Chazanus where Jewish liturgical music was sung in concert halls, on the radio, and on records. It was wildly popular in the Jewish community and also beyond. There was a handful of African-American chazanim who were a part of this golden age of chazanis, and Madame Goldie Steiner was the only African-American woman to our knowledge who was a part of this artistic movement. 
That's amazing. Um, do you know anything about her transition into Jewish liturgical music? Like what inspired her to to start singing that? Was it just geography being in New York and being around that, or do you have any idea? Well, we have some we have some ideas. First of all, she already sang in many languages before she became a part of this golden age of Chazanis movement. And Milwaukee at this time was a time of a lot of exciting black thought and modern African-American advancements in philosophy and religion. As a matter of fact, Milwaukee plays an important role in many of the stories of indigenous African-American religion, African-American homegrown religious movements like the Nation of Islam. Milwaukee is the place where Elijah Muhammad came and hid out for several years when he had to move away from where he was at in, in the early years of his career. And Milwaukee was also a place where African-American Judaism has a lot of historic connections. I imagine that Madame Goldie Steiner had a lot of connections to Jewishness and Jewish traditions from a few different angles. That included, yes, moving to New York, actually to the Lower East Side, and becoming a part of the Yiddish theater scene there. And as she became a part of the Yiddish theater scene, she was facing the same kind of racism and social restrictions that black male hunters experienced, but she had an extra layer being a woman in that environment. Can you can you talk about what it means to be a woman who chose to sing chazonis, which are synagogue chants, basically? Madame Goldie Steiner is a one of a cohort of women chazantas who are a part of this golden age of chazonis. And Dr. Jeremiah Lockwood is doing really exciting research to retell the story of the chazantas. These women were not singing in synagogues, partly due to traditional religious restrictions against men listening to women singing for modesty reasons. But actually, again, this is part of the golden age of Chazanis where men were also singing this music in concert halls, on the radio, on records. But for Madame Goldie Steiner, if she was engaged with what we call today Hebrew Israelite or indigenous African American Judaism's communities, those communities actually had a lot of woman leadership. They had women in positions of authority who were leading prayer and other elements of 
community life for those communities. And so, for example, if she went to New York and became a part of the Commandment Keepers or another of the more well-known Black Jewish communities there, it's conceivable that she was in leadership positions and maybe even leading prayers in those communities. Uh, But certainly in Ashkenazi Jewish synagogues, the woman leadership of prayers for the full congregation doesn't come until much later, with a very few exceptions. So Madam Goldie is part of, of many lineages and legacies. And yes, the Kolisha prohibition uh, against the, the voice of a woman is a part of the story, but it's only a part. So she spent a few decades in New York and that she performed elsewhere around the country. When did she come back to Milwaukee and, and what was the end of her life like? I want to give a shout out to my friend and teacher, Henry Sapoznik, who did the groundbreaking research, which is the only reason any of us are talking about Madame Goldie Steiner and her trailblazing career uh, today, along with the other um, African-American Chazanim from the Golden Age of Chazanis. I learned about Madame Goldie Steiner from Henry's research, and I was listening to a talk that he had given on Zoom one day, and he was talking about how he, uh, the last known performance of hers was this amazing showcase that was a fundraiser for the Brooklyn Urban League where she performed on a bill with all these amazing famous people, including Duke Ellington. And then he says, we lose track of her after 1941. And I'm listening, thinking, I bet she went home to Milwaukee. That's what I would do. And I just kind of started poking around and doing my own internet research and going on Ancestry.com, frankly, as well as paying close attention to kind of what other armchair folks were doing different comments on different Twitter threads where folks had posted about Henry's research. And um, I found her. I found her family. I found her story about the end of her life. I found her unmarked grave in Milwaukee, which is near Alverno College. And yes, she came home to Milwaukee sometime in the 40s, where she lived with her husband, her second husband, Richard Armstead, and um, his daughter. And then Richard died in 1953. And she lived in Milwaukee until 1960, when she died in Wauwatosa. And they're both buried at Mount Olivet Cemetery, um, which is like 35th and Morgan. And I'm very pleased to be working with Wisconsin Black Historical Society on a fundraiser to raise funds for grave markers for Goldie Steiner's grave, as well as her husband's grave. We've almost met our goal. And um, I'm very, very proud to be working 
with the Wisconsin Black Historical Society and Museum and that part of this work. Also, I've been invited to connect with the Bronzeville Arts Ensemble, which is a part of the wonderful Black Arts Milwaukee organization, to do a production to tell the story of Madame Goldie Steiner and her, her trailblazing career. So I'm just thrilled. And I've been thinking about this as rematriating her story to Milwaukee and to the history and histories of Milwaukee. I mean, there is this part of the story, which is I'm also a black woman from Milwaukee who sings Jewish liturgical music. And um, I've really uh, appreciated the opportunities that getting connected to Madame Goldie Steiner have afforded me and and other people in our communities to connect and collaborate. So really looking forward to lots more of that. Well, it's really a noble effort to share her story and to publicize and to let people know her, her great impact and talents. Thank you so much, Shahana McKinney-Balden, for speaking with us about Madame Goldie Steiner. Thank you, Mayan. Shahana McKinney-Balden is an educator, artist, advocate, and thought leader on racial and ethnic diversity in the Jewish community. She's hosting a celebration of Goldie Steiner's life at Mayad on Friday at 12.30. McKinney-Balden spoke with WUWM's Mayan Silver. We want to hear your story ideas for Lake Effect. If you have an idea for an interview or a conversation you'd like to hear on the show, give our community connection line a call. That number is 414-251-8970. You can also submit your ideas at wuwm.com slash lake effect. The Milwaukee River is a main artery of the watershed that bears its name. A WUWM listener wanted to know what kind of fish leap in the river, which is the subject of the kickoff story of our new season of Bubbler Talk. Keep listening to find out more. But first, we'll have a conversation with Milwaukee Ballet's resident choreographer on his last show for the company this weekend. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Timothy O'Donnell has held many titles over his career. Dancer, graphic artist, photographer, and even current resident choreographer at the Milwaukee Ballet. After this weekend, he's trying on a new title, Retiree. Like Effects' Kate Flynn speaks with O'Donnell about his final contribution to the Milwaukee Ballet in this weekend's show, The Originals. Milwaukee Ballet is finally returning to the PAP since the start of the pandemic. The Originals is debuting this weekend with three choreographers working on the production. As resident choreographer, what was your contribution to this show? My work this time, because it's my last work as the resident choreographer, I wanted to kind of return to my my roots in a lot of ways, which is uh, really using this platform, um, this wonderful platform, as a way to share with people things that I think about or, or more importantly, things that I think we should be discussing. In this case, I've done a work 
which focuses on pressures and the experience that um, teenagers go through in their sort of formative years and how we as a society treat them um, and whether we put much sort of weight in their their experiences versus, you know, it's very easy for us as adults to look at young people and think, oh, you think you have problems now, just wait until you're 30. But we're forgetting that, you know, the first time you experience anything or the first time you go through anything, it, it, it is, it's real and, and it's extreme. Not to mention young people are also at a time in their lives when their brain chemistry is the most stressful that's been, hasn't settled down yet. It's a, they, they're not sleeping a lot of the time. You know, they've got these pressures of having to get into colleges or just the amount of homework they have to do. Um, and on top of that, there's social pressures. There's sexual pressures. There is the threat of not being safe in school. There's so many things these young people are going through that I just, I've, I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about it and I wanted to use this piece as a way for both myself and for the audience to really reflect on how we're doing this as a society. And, and if we're really setting ourselves up for the best possible future, discrediting or discounting the emotions and feelings and experiences of our young adults. Yeah, it sounds like it. I think that's a really interesting topic for ballet. I think right now, especially we're really realizing that our younger generations are the future. So would you say that this is more geared towards younger audiences or do you feel like there's something that everyone can take away from the show? Well, it's funny you say that because I've, on top of this, I also wanted to sort of remove it from the present day. So I've placed it in the 90s. It looks very much like a Britney Spears Hit Me Baby One More Time set. I've also used Radiohead from the 90s and early 2000s as the musical score. So I thought by setting it back in time, sometimes I think it's easier to process what you're watching through a lens of distance rather than it being current events or looking like today. And so in saying that, I think people of my generation, the millennials, are going to feel a lot of nostalgia when they watch this piece. I mean... The girls, some of them have butterfly clips in their hairs and you know, they're like it's it's 90s. So, you know, I, I, I do think there's a lot in there for everybody. Definitely. I, I think that the 90s really show up in this piece, especially with the use of Radiohead. Um, what led you to make that decision and choose that band specifically? Well, I mean, that was my teenage experience. It, it seemed appropriate. It's something that... Um, for me feels like high school because it was high school for me. So it's, there's, there's an honesty there to it that I can almost draw on my experiences somehow. It's like sounds and smells have memories attached to them in a lot of ways. So for me, there's, there's nostalgia there, but also I think um, the tracks I've used are, I'm not, I haven't exactly, you know, I'm not exactly reflecting all of the lyrics exactly but thematically, I think they also help me to push my narrative forward. The Radiohead's also very reflective of the space that we're in. The Paps Theatre is, you know, it, it traditionally, particularly this show we do here, it does tend to attract, I mean, we also have our subscribers, but it does tend to attract a younger audience um, because there's, you know, a, a more modern work that we often perform here. So I also thought it really suited the venue we were performing at. Mm, right. Well, you joined Milwaukee Ballet in 2012. You're departing with the show. What guided you to make that decision? I imagine it wasn't a light one. No, I, I just think it's, I've had the most extraordinary time with Milwaukee Ballet and I hope to, I really genuinely hope to continue my relationship with it. 
but you know you get to a point where it would be so listen, it would be so easy for me to just spend the rest the rest of my career here in Milwaukee Ballet but I think I would do myself an injustice because I want I think I I need to go other places and learn in the way different people do things and work with different dancers and I just feel like there's a chance for personal growth that you know as 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 incredible as Milwaukee Ballet is I just feel like I need some more voices in my life and and as I said, I would love to be able to come back and share everything again with Milwaukee. You know, one day, I, I mean, I dream of running this company one day in my future. But um, if I want to be the best boss I can possibly be, I need to get more experience with more people and places and things. <laughs> so how do you feel about this specific show being your last work at Milwaukee Ballet? I am thrilled because I am leaving on a very authentic and honest note as who I am. So as I said, I've choreographed all these other styles. I told you I did a work to the right of spring. I did a work which I loved working with Dasha Kelly um, on a work. She wrote some incredible poetry for me and performed it live. And I created dance to that. That was amazing. Moments where I'm sharing thoughts and trying to engage people in conversation is really who I am honestly as a choreographer and a creator of work. So I feel good that that's the note that I am uh, signing off on, something that is very, very authentic. Yeah, absolutely. So ultimately, what do you hope that audience members know before they walk in to see the show this weekend? Well, I think it's really uh, it's really important we talk about the other works that are in the show because, I mean, mine is only one of three works and Price, his work is so complex, so complicated, so technically challenging for the artists and to see them just achieving it and just killing it every single time is like so inspiring for me. So I get really emotional when I watch them because the, the talent is just incredible. And then um, Nelly is returning uh, and doing a piece called Galem Galem, which is at first, you know, I thought I, cause I was, you only sort of see things as you walk past in the studios. So I sort of, sort of thought it was lighthearted. Um, and then I watched the full run for the first time the other day. And it is this, deeply moving passionate work with some funny moments but also some intensely gripping moments that uh in a very different style than my own but have the same emotional connection but in a different way whereas mine is through storytelling hers there's also a physicality in hers that just stirs so much in you when you watch it so I know I'm rambling but I guess the thing is is people should expect to see three very different works that it's really like a, a tasting plate. There's so much you'll get from this one single show. Right. And I know that you're saying these works are so distinct, but do you see any cohesiveness across these three pieces? The thing is, is like, I think everything is very true to the name of the show. I mean, while Nelly is restaging this work, it was created here in Milwaukee originally. And both Price and I's works, they're definitely... They're incredibly current. They're incredibly new, um, new voices, really telling stories. And even though Prices is not a narrative work, it is a still quite like an, a, an emotive journey. So I'd say that is, I, there you go. That's what connects the three pieces is, is the emotional journey that they all take you on. You will leave each piece vibrating in a distinctly different way. Timothy O'Donnell is the resident choreographer at Milwaukee Ballet and will be premiering his final work in the originals. 
O'Donnell spoke with Lake Effect's Kate Flynn, and its show runs from February 9th through the 12th at the Paps Theater. It's time now for the first episode of our 17th season of Bubbler Talk, our series where we answer listener questions about the region. Susan Benz kicks things off. Bubbler Talk, quenching Milwaukee's thirst for knowledge. Even in the depths of winter, people walk and jog along the Milwaukee River. Some even fish it. One listener wanted to know, What kinds of fish leap in the Milwaukee River? How are those fish populations doing? I meet Laura Schmidt to find out. I'm a fisheries biologist with the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. We're standing at the Milwaukee River along Estabrook Park near the former Estabrook Dam. We're upstream from the river's urbanized, channelized downtown Milwaukee self and entering the more natural version of its 100 meandering miles. It's actually really a good spot even if you don't fish and you just want to go watch the fish jumping around. Fish leaping is a seasonal phenomenon. In the spring, we'll see rainbow trout running up the river for, for their spawning time. And they're impressive swimmers. They have a strong jumping ability, and so they can actually make their way up the river all the way to the Bridge Street Dam in Grafton. Autumn signals spawning season for both Chinook and Coho salmon. Then sometimes brown trout, too. To determine how those fish populations are doing, Schmidt and her colleagues monitor both in the river and Lake Michigan. Because when they're not spawning, those fish live in the Great Lake. Turns out the Wisconsin DNR, along with its Indiana, Illinois, and Michigan counterparts, stock all those leaping species. None were native to the basin, but Schmidt says they've long shared the lake's waters. The Chinook and Coho salmon in particular were originally stocked to control the alewife population. Salmon feasted on the invasive fish. And the sport fishery really took off from there. And in fact, we do see those species naturally producing on the Michigan side of Lake Michigan. Their streams are a little bit more conducive to that. DNR biologists see far less success in the Milwaukee River and its tributaries because water temperatures are higher and sediment often smothers the eggs. That doesn't keep the fish from trying. For salmon, spawning is literally a once-in-a-lifetime experience. After it accomplishes its spawning mission, the fish dies. There's more to the Milwaukee River scene than the drama of visiting spawners. Schmidt says species native to the river are faring well. We see a large variety of fish in the Milwaukee River, lots of forage fish. The smallmouth bass and the northern pike we see look like they're getting plenty to eat. So they're doing really well. Anglers are allowed to fish for both river-dwelling and visiting species. You can keep five fish, and it can be any mixture, and it's a fishery that's open year-round. There's one fish anglers may not go after. For over a decade, the DNR and other partners have been working to reestablish Lake Sturgeon. Lake Sturgeon were naturally part of the Milwaukee River. They were extirpated years ago, mostly due to fish passage and and other uh, impediments, but We've been stocking them in the Milwaukee River for 16 years now, I believe, and we're just starting to see some adults return back, actually, which is really exciting. I meet Joe Davies and Pete Nicola further upstream beyond the Thienesville Dam. A newly improved fish passage was recently completed here. There's just, now there's like resting pools, some cool. nice runs. Um, they made the pools a little bit deeper, keep cool. the, the fish safer and stuff. So there might be some fish hanging on here now, but um, in the spring and fall at the right times, you can actually you can you know, look down into these pools and you can see salmon and, and trout and stuff resting. They aren't just avid anglers. They guide people on fishing expeditions. Joe Davies says they stick to the catch and release approach. Yeah, you, you just do your best to let them go and let them grow, you know, because that, that you know, maybe 15-inch fish you let go 
two, three years time is going to be a trophy fish for somebody and have reproduced, you know, during those three year period of time. Davies, who spent years around the world, says the Milwaukee River experience can't be beat. I got to say, one of the biggest changes I noticed having grown up here and then spending about 20 years away um, was the Milwaukee River definitely had this kind of reputation for you know, not being the, the cleanest waterway out there. And there's been some groups like Milwaukee River Keepers that have done unbelievable work. I mean, it, it gets to the point that you go far enough north, the water can get so clear, the fishing becomes quite difficult because, you know, they see you. <laughs> Pete Nikoloff says whether you return the catch to the river or take it home, the river is for everyone. Same species are available in, right in Milwaukee. It's, I mean, oh, yeah. if you can get, you ride your bike, you know, from a kid can ride their bike from the backyard in Glendale, down to Clutch Park, uh, North Avenue Bridge. I mean, um, those sections of the river hold the same pike and smallmouth bass that we target up here. Um, they're, they're just as plentiful down there. So they're, they're accessible to anybody that can get there via public transportation, um, or walk or ride your bike, or however, it's kind of neat. Turns out the leaping fish question introduced us to more than the life cycle of salmon and the thrill of catching a smallmouth bass. Did you hear the delight in each person's voice when talking about the river and its fish? Take it from biologist Laura Schmidt. You know, I think fish are resilient and they seem to find a way to live in many different conditions and I think that's really cool. Support for this season of Bubbler Talk comes from UW Credit Union. What do you want to know about the Milwaukee area? Submit your question at wuwm.com slash bubbler talk. Bubbler Talk is a regular series on WUWM and Lake Effect. You can hear it every Thursday on Lake Effect and on Fridays during Morning Edition. If you have a question you'd like us to explore for Bubbler Talk and to check out past episodes, head on over to wuwm.com. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Joy Powers and Mallory Chang join me in producing Lake Effect each week with help from Kate Flynn, Robert Larry, and Chase Browning. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. We also heard from Chuck Kornbach, Susan Bentz, and Mayan Silver from the WUWM news team this week. Jason Reevy is our studio engineer. Michelle Maternowski is our digital manager. Valeria Navarro-Viegas is our digital editor. Trapper Chef wrote our theme music. If you've missed any of Lake Effect this week, you can find all of our conversations at wuwm.com. If you'd like to take the show on the go, you can download the Lake Effect podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us today, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.